This is Joe Basso from MusicRadar.com, and I'm speaking with Joe Satriani. One of the first things I wanted to talk to you about was a story that is fairly famous in your legend, that fateful day, September 18th, 1970, when uh, Jimi Hendrix died, and it's also the day that you quit your high school football team to devote yourself to the guitar. This is a story that's much been talked about, but I'd like for you to explain a little bit about that to me. Was guitar already a big part of your life? Was Jimi Hendrix a big part of your life? Uh, What happened that day? Well, Jimi Hendrix was definitely a big part of my life. Um, I started playing drums at nine, lasted for about two years, taking lessons, being serious about it, and started to think it was time to take a break being a musician for a bit. And during that break period, I was really uh, taken with what was happening in uh, what was really becoming the genre of rock. My older siblings kept laying records on me, and so that's how I got introduced to the music of Jimi Hendrix. So I was kind of like a Hendrix nut by the time that day came by, but I wasn't thinking about playing guitar. But, um, yeah, I was standing all suited up. Uh, I went to a place called Car Place High School on Long Island, and I was ready to start practice, and someone came out, another team member, said they had been home for lunch and saw on the news that this guy, Jimi Hendrix, had died, and did I know who he was? And uh, I was just devastated, and I just turned around, took off my gear, quit the team, and, uh, it, you know, just like a, a, a slightly twisted Norman Rockwell kind of scene. <laughs> I stood up uh, during, you know, dinner with the rest of the family and with my, uh, my other four siblings and my parents, and I said, Jimi Hendrix died today, and I'm going to become a guitar player. <laughs> wow. There was a bit of silence, and I could see fear across my mother's face, but um, um, that's how it happened. Um, Was it just like this lightning bolt, this message from the sky? You know, it was a sinking kind of a feeling. Uh, It wasn't an exciting feeling. I just was really, um, it would just kind of wipe me out, just the thought that uh, he was not going to be around to provide my life you know, with with what I realized at that moment was my soundtrack, a very important soundtrack to my life was those records. And so it all sort of, I mean, you know, when you're 14, you're not thinking t- completely clearly, but, um, and it's even hard to, uh, to describe, you know, what went through my mind because it was more of a, a physical rush, uh, you know, as much as a, as a mental one. Um, or, and uh, so between between the the emotions and the the whole feeling of my body like it was moving into a new direction um uh it it was a it was a turning point and i think that's the 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 most obvious uh, way of describing it is that i realized i'd come to you know a crossroads in my life if you want to call it that and i had to take action you know and and that that's what i that was my only option was well then you should play guitar you know and and to provide the music for yourself and uh, of course you know uh, it from that decision to the next step was incredibly difficult and then the next step uh, after that was even harder and that's when I realized man this playing guitar business is really difficult and uh, it's going to take a long time both you and um, one of your uh, more famous students Steve I you know, have spoken about your marathon practice sessions, practicing for 10, 12 hours at a time, even even more so. Is it like that runner's high? What is that like to practice that long? 
Yeah, I, I you know, uh, I would have to say that um, there is a kind of a runner's high, like you mentioned. Um, but I think that my experience in teaching other talented students is that everyone has their own way of progressing, and they all, you know, eventually settle on a method that seems to fit with their temperament, you know. Uh, Steve is certainly someone who can sit down and, you know, sort of meditate on the idea of practicing and go, you know, for 12 or 15 hours. There have been short periods of my life where I felt like I really accomplished a lot by trying to do 12 hours a day for, let's say, two months, and then that was it, you know. And uh, But I've had other really uh, talented students who've only, you know, they go three or four hours and then that's it. Maybe they skip days and, you know, their bodies seem to get them to the next step uh, on a regular basis with less repetition. And, uh, you know, part of that, I think, is that um, we, we're not all starting at the same spot with the same amount of uh, physical talent, uh, physical attributes, or... Um, or mental um, information about music. Um, some students, you know, they come in, maybe they've taken music classes in school, but the physical part of guitar playing is is new to them. But they can use that uh, intellectual part to actually push them through the physical part faster. Then you've got other people, like myself, who are, are actually starting, uh, you know, the music theory and the physical part of playing all at the same time. So it might actually require a lot more hours to figure stuff out, to transfer it from book to fingers, uh, from ear to fretboard, that kind of thing. Um, you know, sometimes you got people who have been playing guitar for 12 years. They have all the facility in the world, but they have no idea where the notes are or what chords are called. And you know, so we're all different in how we approach it. So uh, I've never focused on how many hours you practice as being some sort of uh, rule of thumb, you know, uh, where you've got to do eight hours a day or else you're not going to progress or something like that. I, I think anything goes, really. When Steve Vai did come to you for lessons, he was a teenager, you were a teenager, you had already taught a few people, um, but uh, what was it about Steve that struck you as being special? Did, could you tell right off that there was something a little different about this guy? Well, I think he, uh, you know, you wouldn't put it this way as being teenagers, as we both were, but let's say we shared the sense of the absurd, you know. I mean, if you were, back then, if you were a fan of all the crazy stuff Hendrix was doing and, and Frank Zappa, well, then you were in a minority, but it was a great little group of people to be associated with. Um, so that part really helped. Um, uh, because, you know, 99% of my other students, if I put on Zap or I put on Machine Gun, they just look at me with a blank face, you know, and uh, because they, you know, they wanted to play like Jim Croce or something like that, you know. So um, that that helped. And then, of course, um, uh, Steve's appetite uh, for uh, practicing and for learning was fantastic. I was, you know, I was really... Um, uh, I was asked to turn over stuff that I was just learning myself, you know, just a few weeks earlier. And so uh, we rapidly went from being, uh, you know, me the teacher and, and, and Steve the student into being sort of comrades searching for any information we could to get ourselves to be, you know, guitar gods, because that was our quest, you know, that we shared. You spent a lot of time in San Francisco um, playing in, uh, you played in a new wave band, you worked in a guitar shop. Did you think during this time that your big break wouldn't come? 
Certainly. I think that's, uh, isn't that a fear that every musician has? <laughs> you get up in the morning and you go, what am I doing with my life, you know? Uh, I think that uh, the music business is, you know, serves up, you know, failure notices on a regular basis. <laughs> and there's a lot of fear and loathing going on all the time. And uh, it's uh, it can be very inspiring if you handle it the right way. And, and certainly... Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, being in a new wave band. Um, I played with uh, Jeff Campitelli and, and Andy Milton in a band called The Squares. And, um, you know, it was during that, uh, during that period, um, towards the end, uh, that I decided to try to just record some instrumental stuff just for fun, really. And, um, I, you know, I, I think that um, it's funny how things happen like that, you know, things you get put into a position and you do something just for fun and and then all of a sudden you realize wow you know my chosen path is the wrong path and my and my my uh left turn path the thing i do just as a lark is actually that should be my chosen path you know and um it was just that's kind of like what happened i i guess you know i mean maybe i was lucky that we that we didn't succeed you know in that band for so many years and uh it's sort of created this energy in this opposite direction for me. Surfing with the Alien, of course, broke you through to a huge audience. It cracked the Billboard Top 20. What were your goals, though, at that point? Obviously, you wanted to be successful, but could you have envisioned the, the kind of massive success that that record brought? No, no, no. We, boy, wow. Uh, you know, we were taking baby steps back then. I mean, to get um, to get the green light to record... Uh, surfing with the alien was a huge thing, you know, because as you said, you know, that Night of the Surf, which was something I recorded on a credit card and was licensed by Relativity, um, that was a huge step. But then that next record, I had to sort of audition live, you know, at the China Club uh, one night in Manhattan. They were they were all looking at me like, who is this guy? He doesn't <laughs> look like a rock star. You know, there is no such thing as instrumental rock music anymore. And what are we going to do with this guy, you know? Um, I think that that particular night, they heard me play. There was something in what I was doing which um, uh, which made them realize that I wasn't just going to do some kind of dark shredding record or brooding jazz rock fusion thing, <laughs> you know, that... Because um, I, I kept saying, you know, look, I want to I want to put Mix Hendrix and Chuck Berry, and I, I've got all these ideas about, you know, making a record that actually holds together like a, a rock record, you know, with with a with an important sequence and all this and they're looking at me like you're out of your mind you know so I played I guess some of the for them that night and they they got it so getting a green light to record that record was a big deal but myself and, and Jeff and, and my co-producer John Cunaberti you know we figured when we're done with this they're definitely sending us out of town <laughs> you know <laughs> it'll be thank you very much go away you know <laughs> it was a struggle to stay within a budget which we didn't you know and and the budget doubled and we we were trading studio time we were bartering just to try to make up for it i think about a third of the budget actually just came directly out of my pocket just by asking for favors around town and uh, because the label were just refused to spend any more money on it but we you know we spent twenty nine thousand dollars we made this record we handed it in and uh i just thought okay i'll go back to my other life you know and start thinking about what you asked me before you know <laughs> things not working out too well you know but uh we were surprised by how it was received 
you know, it slipped into the Billboard charts at 186, and I was thrilled. I mean, we, you know, we all called each other and said, "Can you believe it? We're on a chart, <laughs> a chart of any kind." You know, <laughs> and then yeah, and then it just sort of slowly kept moving forward. And so, you know, I mean, you asked me, did I ever think it would get that kind of success? Absolutely not. I mean, it was like a week to week thing. We would celebrate just a little bit more because we weren't, you know, we didn't get that call to get out of town, you know, to pack up and take our stuff with us, you know. And uh, then all of a sudden it was like riding a tidal wave, you know. So let's talk about your new album, and let me get the title right. It's Professor Sachafunkelis and the Mysterian of Rock. Yeah. Not a short title. No. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, and you and I have talked about this before, um, your desire was to make a relatively brief album of ten tight tracks. Um, we, ju- we should point out, relatively brief still comes in at 54 minutes and yes. 20 seconds. Yes, but, <laughs> but, is, but ten tracks, like not, record, right? but, but not 17, 18 tracks. Um, at what point during the writing or making of the album did this come to you, to have ten, ten songs? I think that uh, it had been uh, building up for quite a long time. I mean, when I go back, my last really big record where I really was so cued into the amount of time and the amount of songs and the, the way it was sequenced was probably Crystal Planet. And, um, I, I, I mean, I tweaked every little, funny little uh, hidden design of that record. I even sequenced the song so that every new song comes in in a higher key. So that it, the, from the, from song one all the way to the end, everything ascends and it keeps ascending. And then if after the last track you start the record again, it ascends again. And uh, so I've done some pretty funny things and I've done records. But <laughs> I, I remember after we, we did that record and we toured, and the first part of the tour we played the entire record live, you know, in sequence. And But by the end of that tour, and I started working on the next record, I went, wow, I think I'm the only guy who got that, you know? <laughs> and... That record, of course, came out when file sharing really just exploded. And so suddenly society changed for good. I mean, it had been building up for a long time with the advent of CDs. But once Napster hit, sequencing meant nothing anymore. And I started to think, wow, that's, I, could, you know, I can bemoan that whole thing, or I can say, this is freedom. This is, I don't have to worry about the sequence anymore. And uh, which used to be a problem when you had discs or cassettes, you know, and um, it ruined a lot of sequences actually those formats. But now I realized I was free to do it. That meant I didn't have to do all this sequencing with keys and tones and all this kind of stuff. And I started to experiment with records that reflected more of the way people listen to music, which was in any sequence they want, you know and allowed me to go into each song in detail, not worrying about those items. With this record, it wasn't so much the timing, because, you know, the record comes in at just under an hour, so it's not like I trimmed, you know, what I've been putting out, you know, the output in terms of time. But I guess it was thematically, it wasn't going to be like Flying in a Blue Dream, where there were, you know, 18 pieces of music, each going in a separate direction. Um, I wanted to make sure that the album um, was... uh, creatively coherent and but yet I wanted it to be quirky and I wanted to to be able to deviate but I did really work on how it would come across as a, as a, a sequenced group of of pieces and so 
in that way, it was, a, it, in my mind, thematically, it was a tight record, 10 songs, 10 distinct ideas, some of them related to each other, and some of them thrown in there uh, for complete deviation and the effect that it would have if you were listening from, from top to bottom. Um, but and that in a way allowed me to stretch out. I think if I had tried to stick, you know, 15 pieces of music, um, you know, in let's say an hour's uh, CD framework, I think I probably would have felt like, well, you know, don't expand too much on these ideas because you'll have to get rid of a song. And I didn't want to do that. So, you know, you write 40 songs, you pick the best 20, you you know, you do a little bit more editing. And, and then you send them out to the participants of the record and you say, does any of this suck, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me now, and that way you won't have to learn it, you know? And then we we worked it down to, uh, I think it was 12 or 13 pieces of music, and then finally I made one last cut um, and so that I, I really felt good about what I was going to have the guys track to in the studio. Um, and then, you know, after the guys left, I made my decision uh, along with John Cunaberry, my co-producer, that let's put our foot down and stick to these ten because they're really working. They work together. We've got great performances, and it appears that we're inspired with how to deal with them as recordings. And um, so, yeah, that's. I mean, it's a funny thing. I, I, I realize it is it is tight, but it is almost an hour long. A lot of the songs deal with very. Um serious subject matter, heartfelt emotions. There's a come on baby, there's revelation out of the sunrise, but there's also a lot of lighthearted moments as well. Um, I just want to rock about a robot on the loose who comes across a, a rock concert and uh, overdriver about a out of control funny car. And of course, professor Sasha Bunkalis about the yeah. ultimate Mac daddy you know, you're you're not afraid to embrace humor in your music, and that's that's something kind of rare in uh, an instrumentalist. Yeah, I guess um, I guess that's just my true nature. You know, is that uh, I, I'm I love humor, and and I guess it's part of my basic personality. So it comes out. I, I sometimes I wonder whether it's a, a good thing, you know, to add into a record. Or not, and then. Uh, but once I forget, you know, and I'm not self-conscious about it, I realize that I—that's what comes out. And uh, so you're seeing a, a, you know, a real. You're getting a real snapshot of my personality when you look at a record like this, and you go, "Wow, there's some dead serious stuff and some really silly stuff at the same time." And that's pretty much the way I am, I guess. <laughs> and and you just the hard part is figuring out when I'm being silly and joking and, and when I'm not. That's that's what Matt Bissonette always says. He always says he can't talk to me because he can't tell when I'm trying to pull his leg or not. <laughs> <laughs> but I always say it's because it's, he's just too dry. I keep saying, loosen up, Matt, you know. <laughs> but humor has always played a part in your your music, from your album covers to your album titles to song titles, you know, to crowd chant. You know, you're obviously a, a very serious musician, but, you know, you're not afraid to embrace the lighthearted side of things. That's right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And but you know, as I was saying before, it's serious business uh, recording lighthearted music. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's very difficult to record a crowd. It's like uh, if you talk to a comedian, there's a million ways of telling a joke depending on wh you know how many heartstrings they want to pull. And uh, and you you think about the heart wrenching comedy of Richard Pryor. You know, I mean, God, he could kill you while being funny at the same time. And I think that's the the power 
of humor can also allow you to deal with a subject that's maybe um, delicate and then in just in a positive way sometimes it just allows you to really lay down a great groove and in in this particular case you know there's um with the professor satchifunculus you know it was the only way to get that groove and and w- w- was to layer these guitars and to allow them to be uh, maybe a bit humorous from time to time you know and that's what keeps it going and um i mean you hear that if you listen, if you're listening to hip hop, you hear that all the time. It's a mixture of dead serious message with lighthearted comedic sounds now and then. But it's the way that it's used can be very heavy and very serious. And uh, so it, that, I'm, that's not lost on me. You know, as an instrumentalist, I'm picking up on that all the time, and uh, and I like that part of it. And um, I mean, surfing with the alien is a perfect example. You know, it's got a rather humorous sort of approach in a way because it's so over the top you know the guitar solos are over the they're just funny in a way you know they're not dead serious you know it's not like a david gilmore solo you know where it's like serious guitar solo you know van halen always had that as as well i mean his guitar solos were very you know smart alecky yes yeah and and uh but uplifting and um and disarming and uh barrier breaking and I think that's there are a lot of guitar players who can do that and some of them do it so well and you mentioned Eddie Van Halen I mean that's he's such a master and his personality it just infuses what he does and and it and it makes you feel it now your uh, your son ZZ plays a uh, saxophone on the uh, track uh, Professor Satchafunculus that's right yeah um, are, are you ever going to take him on tour with you <laughs> You know, he's been traveling with me since he was four years old. I mean, he has really been around the world quite a few times. And uh, so he's, he's got a sort of a you know, easygoing attitude towards touring because he's done it so often. But he does love it. And, um, I, you know, I put it to him, and, and but he thought, no, I'm not going to do that again because of the way that we recorded it. He realized it was so... Uh, you know, he wasn't. Uh, let me put it this way: one one evening, you know, I kept coming back from the studio saying, you know, I got to record the sax part, you know, and and he just started playing sax, you know, just a couple of months ago. So he's wondering what, you know, what's dad thinking, you know, what is he getting me into here, you know? So well, one day, you know, I'm sitting here. I came back from the studio, and and, and my room is my studio is right next to where he does all his homework. So. I said, why don't you come on here and we'll do the sax thing now, you know. So he gets his sax, he walks in, he sits down, and he goes, how are we going to do this? And I said, you know what? I said, you don't just play freeform, whatever you want. And I kind of played him the track, so he, and I said, I need some sax in the beginning, I need a low note here, and I need some kind of a riff towards the end, you know. And um, But it wasn't a finished track that I could play him. So I just set up a, a microphone, plugged him in the Pro Tools, and, and I said, well, you know, what do you feel like doing, you know? So he started playing some riffs, and then then he said, he said, you ever hear this, you know? And so he kind of, you know, leaned into his tenor sax, and he started doing these weird fluttery kind of notes. And he just, he took it upon himself to completely change the introduction of the song, (laughs) (laughs) which was really kind of cool to see. Just just like, you know, Jeff or Matt would do in the studio, you know, just offer up a, a, you know, left field idea. And I thought, well, that's really cool. That's different, you know? So and then he got around to playing a big low note that was supposed to be like the foghorn of San Francisco Bay, you know. And then uh, then I said I'll play me a couple of blues licks, you know, maybe I can fit it in on the end there. And he just improvised a couple of things. And in about 15 minutes, he put his sax back in the case and went back to doing his homework. <laughs> yeah. 
So then I brought the stuff in to the studio the next day, and I said, oh, you're not going to believe what he played in the beginning, you know? And so, because John Cunnerberry was wondering, like, how is the saxophone going to fit in in the song? If he, and he, I think he figured Zizi would be playing a line or something, like doubling a guitar line. Or something. Right, right. And so instead, it starts out with this ethereal little... It's just like, wow, you know? So we got, it really inspired us you know, with the rest of the song and how we were going to mix it, and uh, that's funny. I mean, at, at, with that song in particular as well, uh, I should tell you that uh, Jeff also did something totally different, which is what he, he does best very often, is that I had this really tight sort of 808 uh, cheesy little drum machine sort of groove going with the track, and I was convinced that something like that was going to have to be laid down. So Jeff and John get this really vintage teeny drum kit and it's very small uh like bass cabinet isolation booth sound and and they lay down a track and jeff does something totally different he throws in some swing he plays ride cymbal you know during the choruses and everything uh, completely against my instructions right 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 and i thought okay i'm just gonna take a deep breath count the 10 you know come back in a couple of hours and see what i think and then we got in and we mixed it around it was like wow that's that is the better idea <laughs> and and so um i mean that happened all over the record whether it was you know zizi just improvising some sax flutters you know just on his own initiative and or or jeff changing the the, the way that the drums would lay out you know um i i just thought that was that was great how how people came and added their stuff and helped change the direction in a good way you know, a lot of singer-songwriters, it, it seems, uh, do their best work earlier in their in their career. It's almost like the fiery kind of poetry is, is tied to their youth. Do you feel that as an instrumentalist, you don't share that kind of problem? Well, I think that uh, what maybe some people don't understand is that um, when somebody bursts on the scene with one record, like their first or second record, um, and they get embraced in a big way by an audience, they have a big success. That material is going to be performed by that artist every night on stage all over the world for as long as their career goes. So from the artist's perspective, they're still doing the album. You know what I mean? Right. They, yes. they, don't, they can't not do it. They have to do it. So I have to play you know, a good amount of songs from Surfing with the Alien every night, and we have. And those songs are fresh in my mind because that's my life i i mean every time i go on tour i play half of that record or maybe a little a third of the record in front of people so it's not like an old record to me it is for people who look at the date and go oh that record came out 20 years ago you know um so it's not like i've uh so let's just say that from the from the the emotional side of of the performer they're still doing that you know what I mean? So when they go to make a new record, they're thinking to themselves, well, I'm still doing this, so I should offer up something different. I find it difficult to explain, but it's a very important thing to, to understand that, um, you know, I, I, even if it's just like Aerosmith, you know, they're still doing Dream On. Dream On is still fresh in their creative world. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, when we think of it, we think about you know, when we were in high school or something when it came out, or you know what I mean? We we have a totally different perspective because we don't play it on stage every night. We're not sitting there reinterpreting it, digging into it and everything. 
so they they're so the artist is still delivering that freshness every night and um and I, that's a very important thing i think that that uh the cons- the not the consumer what am i saying the the concert goer or the record buyer may may not realize that and and they may think that the artist did that and then they've you know they haven't thought about it for 20 years and so why you know they often wonder why don't they just keep doing that you know <laughs> but then what would they play on stage every night they can't play the same thing every night you know 20 songs you know you can't play 20 dream ons you can't play <laughs> 20 fetch boogies and it's just like what are you going to do so uh it, it's uh, the reality is is that we're forced to to expand you've had a long history with ibanez guitars you have your js 1600 js 1000 js 1200 and the, the JS-1600, that's the, the silver one, correct? Right. And there's also the, the JS-100 series, uh, low-cost series. That's, those are actually really good guitars. Do you have any plans for a, a new model at any point? You know, we just uh, finished a good lengthy R&D period where um, we, we, we wound up, as you mentioned before, the 1600 came out uh, this year, which is a sort of an update of the, the 6, the original JS-6 mm-hmm. from back around 95 and um we uh, the 1200 is still uh, one of my favorite guitars and one that that's still in the catalog um but we were able to finally get our surfing with the alien commemorative guitar out which looks really great we've got that great marvel artwork and we actually have a 3d silver surfer embedded in the front of the guitar wow and uh i'm also right now staring at a, a prototype for the illustrated uh js uh, i guess it would be you'd have to say it's the js1 it's the earliest prototype of the guitar that we came up with and um the one that was famously photographed for the back um of the uh, flying in the blue dream record um, right but leading up to that period you know i would illustrate with metallic pens every night on the guitar and by the end of the night a lot of it would get rubbed off from the performance and i'd re-illustrate it and uh, they found lots of photographs, and they put together this really uh, fantastic sort of collage of the sort of like the best of all the illustrations, and then um, hired an artist to meticulously copy uh, the, the the illustrations. And so I'm looking at one right now, and I was handed this prototype at the NAMM show, and I was absolutely floored by it because I looked at it and I thought. How did you guys get a hold of one of my guitars? Because <laughs> the guy like completely copied my my writing and my scribbling, whatever you want to call it, my illustrating. And this is before I was doing, you know, the, the very graphically oriented, unusual, you know, alien animal figures. This is when I was really doing just a barrage of squiggles and 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 images on top of images. And um, it's just pretty stunning looking. So. Um, I'm really happy about that. That we've been we've been focusing a lot on the finish because the the JS1000 I think reached uh, just a, a wonderful artistic height. You know where the wood, the shape of the neck, the frets, the composition of the bar, the pickups, all this stuff has just gotten to this beautiful, completely refined point. And um, I know you know other companies may say, "Come on, let's let's add an extra horn, let's make it pointier, let's you know, <laughs> let's uh, add this or that or the other thing." And uh, Ibanez has, has been uh, a really great in understanding that I've always wanted to create a, a classic guitar, and and not something that was just uh, you know a trendy kind of a thing. 
Uh, so um, it's, it, I've been very happy with it. I understand that you're coming out with a, a line of uh, Vox effects pedals this summer. Um, yeah, I'm very excited about this. This boy, you know, finally being able to tackle that last step in the equation, you know, because I got guitars and I've got PV amps, and uh, but there's this thing I plug into <laughs> on mm -hmm. the floor, this crazy pedal board, you know, and I love pedals, but I curse them at the same time because, you know, you find a pedal that does some sound really good, and then you go, well, why did they do that? Why, you know, it should have an extra knob for this, or they should change the value of that, and over the years, I've, I've dealt with some designers, and I've, you know, asked them to go back and know add a filter here or an extra control there so finally saying okay i'm gonna i'm gonna devote myself to carving out time in my life to actually design these pedals you know sit down with real engineers and say let's let's take the basic distortion that i like and let's finally do it right let's finally get to these problems that all guitar players uh have right. and, and with these boxes and let's solve them once and for all you know the vox team really you know they stayed in the game, man. They didn't... <laughs> every time, you know, I would send things back and say, no way, man, you know, this <laughs> isn't working. They, uh, they would send more people out to, to find out exactly what it was, you know. And uh, so in the end, you know, um, you know, myself and Mike Bradley, Masahiro Lee, um, and, and Steve Grinrod, we all, all crazy guitar players with different styles, all would sit there and play these things for hours and hours. And and confer on what we were hearing, what we were feeling, our experience with to how the thing you know looked and functioned. And uh, so we started with the distortion, a thing called the saturator, which will come out very soon. Okay. And uh, we'll have uh, a wawa, a multifunction wawa pedal, and we'll have um, a delay pedal. Um, I'm just looking at controls for that now, which is really great. And uh, and then from there, they, they start to get kind of crazy. And I, I have to kind of keep quiet about some of the crazier pedal ideas. But we, um, <laughs> but I mean, the cool thing is, is that I think that um, my experience with the prototypes, using them on the record, using them live uh, uh, here and there, um, has just been uh, phenomenal. I mean, just the the other week, I jumped on stage with Sammy Hagar and Chad Smith um, and Michael Anthony at, at one of Sammy's shows in Vegas at the Palms, and had my prototype box you know plugged into the front of the pv half stack and it was amazing sounding and and everyone was coming up to me asking me man that guitar sounds amazing what were you doing you know and and there on the floor was this crummy little thing it looks like someone made it in their mm -hmm. kitchen <laughs> that i quickly unplugged and put in my pocket and so i'll be taking this with me you know um it's it's really great to to not only uh you know to, to have a box that you can call your own but to know that you can show up like at a gig like that and just sort of plug into it and bam you know without rehearsing you can just turn it up and you know the guys doing the front of house love it the audience loves it the band's looking at you like man that sounds great you know and uh, that's all all our hard work paid off so listen thank you very much for uh, spending some time with me you're welcome uh this is joe basso for musicradar.com and i've been speaking with joe satriani the new record is called let me get this right. Professor Satchafunkalis and the Mysterian of Rock. And uh, it comes out in April. April 1st. April 1st. And April Joe, 1st. Th thank you very much for uh, spending some time with me. Thanks for having me.